favoritsyklister Edvard Båsenhagen Han er litt annerledes enn de andre Edvard Båsenhagen Og Sykkelen Hey podcast listener You're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast The weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about Whether you're out training, commuting or just riding around Sit down and listen in Because we're about to begin I got something to say Yo, welcome to episode 103 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about Superman. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash mobility. And yes, a review to get us underway today. Top draw, five stars by Anomi12 from the UK. As a newbie road cyclist, I have found that this podcast complements my new obsession excellently. Whilst the information is highly complex at times, I feel that I have taken a load of useful advice that has helped me to improve my performance on the bicycle. This presenter is enthusiastic and passionate and easy to relate to. Highly recommended. Bam! Thank you very much for that. It really, really rocks my world when you drop a review in either iTunes or Stitcher. So if you do like the show, I would love a review on either iTunes or Stitcher because five stars make me go I'm a star I'm a star I'm a star I'm a star I'm a big big star thank you very much now the next section which I've renamed the performance probe and the first performance article that I've got for you today is from my latest man crush Alan Cousins Um, he is a triathlete coach but don't hold that against him because a lot of his stuff is great and well thought out The article that I'm bringing up today talks about talk and it's called Talking the Talk. It delves into how to increase talk, which is increasing the force that you impart on the pedals. And this area overlaps with the strength training on and off the bike, which brings up the first important point from the article. While cardiovascular capacity clearly plays a role in the cyclist's ability to remain aerobic while producing the requisite force, it does not change the fact that there is a minimal force that is required in order to produce competitive race powers and consequent speeds. He goes on to make a really clear distinction between strength endurance sports and pure endurance, with accompanying physiological distinctions separating the two. In the world of strength and endurance sports such as rowing, cycling and cross-country skiing, physiologists have identified an optimal muscle fibre makeup that distinguishes those successful in these sports from their pure endurance cousins, <clears throat> marathon runners. Specifically, Newman 2000, through extensive muscle biopsies, studies of strength athletes has identified an optimal fibre composition of 1.3 to 1 between fast and slow twitch fibers and this is distinct from the ratio of slow and fast twitch fibers but instead refers to the size in two representative fibers one slow and one fast if they were compared side by side in an average young untrained male typical ft to st ratios will be 1.1 to 1 and on the flip side of that world-class power lifters olympic lifters and sprint runners exhibit ratios in the neighborhood of 1.5 to 1 
So as mentioned, the optimal number for a strength endurance athlete is 1.3 to 1. Cousins goes on to write, clearly then, taking an athlete from an untrained state to a trained state in a strength endurance sport requires some training designed towards FT fiber hypertrophy. Of course, the caveat in this training must be that the size does not come with a decrement in the aerobic capacity of the fibers. In other words, any hypertrophy that occurs must be able to be functionally supported by the aerobic energy system. When prescribing training, we want a stimulus that is sufficiently easy that it can be supported aerobically, but is sufficiently hard that it results in significant FT recruitment. And the good news is that despite the name, fast twitch fibers do not require high movement speeds in order to be recruited, but they do require relatively low levels of torque. So specifically, fast twitch recruitment begins at approximately 40% of MVC and peaks at around 80 to 85% of MVC. Obviously, these numbers can be easily transferred across to percentage of repetition maximum numbers for an array of gym exercises, but they can also be applied to a set specific on-the-bike strength workout prescriptions for those athletes training with power. For example, an athlete with a peak power output of 1,000 watts at 100 RPM has a peak torque of 95 newton meters. Therefore, if we want to design a workout that significantly recruits his fast twitch fibers we need torque numbers of between 38 newton meters and 76 newton meters which is 40 to 80 percent of peak torque this leads to two distinct workouts as part of any athlete's strength development at the lower end 40 to 50 percent of max torque this takes the form of long strength endurance work this is long rides in the mountains with extended periods at low cadences from 20 to 90 minute periods at very low cadence of around 30 to 50 rpm at a moderate force and these are typically though not necessarily easiest to do on long moderate climbs. Number two is at the upper end of 80 to 85% of max torque and these workouts take the form of big gear hill repetitions. These can be done on long sub-threshold interviews on a long climb or repeated VO2 efforts at a higher cadence up a shorter hill and usually standing so you can get enough These are prescribed by cousins. Firstly, the first type of workout, one to two times per week, depending on the phase of training. And the second one, one to three times per week, depending on the phase of training as well. So it really shows the importance of how much strength building each season goes into each of his athletes. And the second type of workout is preceded by a phase of gym training with similar movements and loads in a more controlled setting. Even when doing three strength workouts per week, doing one of them as a form for focused workout in the gym is really good practice and I absolutely agree with that because you need your biomechanics functioning perfectly to milk all the power that is already in your body. So just wrapping up here, even if you're currently lacking the fitness to attain these levels of competitive race power, by slowing down the cadence you can train your strength reserve to the point that you can easily accommodate competitive race force. And in this way for endurance sports, the development of aerobic strength endurance is a performance reserve and for an athlete it's a must to have this sufficient muscle mass to propel the body at competitive race velocities even if you can't do so aerobically developmentally strength is the first step so i definitely follow this practice and it's really good just to put some actual 
logic behind it and some studies that back up my thinking. Definitely, it depends on the time of the season for me and the development of the cyclist as well because I'm not going to throw a cyclist onto heavy on-the-bike stuff if they don't have the base in the gym first. And that's specificity going from general to specific. So maybe it is in the second or third year that I start getting really heavy with on-the-bike stuff and then supplementing that with weight training but if it's your first year doing any type of strength stuff you really got to start with the base of building weights in the gym to get that biomechanical function first and then you can transfer and take that to on the bike stuff and start doing the workouts that are mentioned here the second article that i've got this week is all about well last week i spoke about marcel kittel and his giant shimano sprint train I thought some numbers would be interesting to quickly discuss because Ross Tucker from thesportscientist.com went through the same article that I did last week and he broke it down a little bit more. Plus, he also had some insight to the author and he could talk to him directly about certain parts of it, which brought some new information to light. So he talks about the different power-to-weight ratios that are needed to do well in the tour. And we're talking 6 watts per kilogram in the mountains to win yellow, 8 watts per kilogram and 15 watts per kilogram attacks that win last-minute breakaways and 18 watts per kilogram to win sprints. He takes a stab at Marcel Kittel's output, which is funny because Marcel himself made a big point a couple of months ago in the media of not revealing his numbers because he didn't want his competitors to know them so they couldn't train towards them and plan an attack around his numbers. But I took a guess back then, but Ross's logic is a little clearer than mine, so I'll go through this and he actually just takes a quick punt at what Marcel's numbers are. So he's a big lad, Marcel Kittel, and he's 82 kilos or thereabouts. So he's going to produce higher absolute numbers than small guys like Cav. And so if you're talking about the 18 watts per kilogram, he would be pushing around 1,476 watts to win a tour sprint. And we also have to note the fatigue effects here because these numbers are produced, of course, after a day's stage, whether it's 150, 200 or 250 kilometers of racing they don't represent a true peak for each rider. So the true peak that a rider would put out would probably be 10 to 15% higher than what they're doing at the end of these stages. So in the case of Marcel Kittel, you're talking about 1,600 or 1,700 watts in a fresh, non-fatigued state. So you compare this to pure sprinters, Sir Chris Hoy and the like from the track, and they're probably touching on over 2,000 watts. But as we mentioned, a professional road cyclist sprinter is riding for five hours, then delivering maybe 90% of their peak power output combining aspects of their endurance and explosive power. So how do your numbers compare to this? It's easy to see someone that performs well in an hour-long crit. Someone like Caleb Ewan, for example, will really struggle to finish off a 200-kilometer day without a solid FTP and endurance base to deliver him to the sprint. So where do your numbers start to drop off? Can you do a good crit, but then short road races you struggle and long races you have no chance? Or are you able to handle the entire thing? Again, like last week, it's about asking these questions of yourself so you know where you're at in your training, not only the type of sprinter that you might be. But this takes years to develop. And for me, it's one more reason that I love cycling and I believe it's the greatest sport on earth because it takes so bloody long to get good at it that it really tests your physical and mental ability. (laughs) 
Alrighty, the nuts and bolts this week, how to start with mobility and stability. And this week, yes, we're talking about good old mobility and stability. I harp on about this all the time. But I was on a call with a consulting client this week and he was asking about where to start, which really made me think that it's been a long time since I've done a show on mobility. And it's so important to get this stuff right. And there's no better place to start with than the fundamental understanding of the two concepts, mobility and stability. So this is a rerun of episode 20 with Justin Hayes. There's no way that I could have put it any better than this episode, so I'm bringing back a show that covers it really, really well. It was recorded in October 2012, and it had a great response at the time, and it has had a really good response since. So in the world of mobility and stability, my recommendations have not changed, and this episode has so far stood the test of time. So with Without further ado, let's get rolling. Right now, I'm going to focus on the basics of fundamental movement for strength training and body balance, including a self-assessment tool that can get you started and where to start with your results. Also, I'm going to have a quick look at two common mobility issues that cyclists face. Now, I was led down this path by a guy called Justin Hayes of superhumanpursuits.com. His take on the whole mobility thing is based on his own personal journey into pain and back out again, and he's the first to admit that he knows very little about cycling, but I am cool with that. I'm totally cool with that. I asked him on the show because the way he explains it is very clear and very simple, and I thought that it's an excellent base for anybody that's going to start a strength program to work from. It's also important for movement in everyday life, and I hope that that comes across to you. So I asked Justin onto the show to run through it with me. Okay, Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me, Damien. I want to start straight up and get into mobility, and I would like an explanation from you or a description on exactly what mobility is. So mobility, you don't want to make it any more complicated than it actually is. So the most simple definition of it is the ability to produce motion, Uh, and, and that usually is described from a joint perspective. So my hip mobility would be, you know, how mobile my hip is if I were to lift my leg from an, like an active straight leg perspective. That is the most simplistic definition of mobility. The way that I've kind of come to think about it, it's kind of stretching with a purpose or, or movement with a purpose where you can actively measure something. It is in a sense, and it's also more so people have all, always associated mobility and flexibility, and they do have a relationship But at the same time, mobility has a lot of other factors in play. For example, soft tissue plays a huge role in mobility all, you know, through any joint at the body. And if you have soft tissue restrictions, regardless of whether you stretch or how you move, or even if you were to do dynamic flexibility exercises that people are familiar with nowadays, you know, there's a lot more that encompasses mobility. So these are things like the hip capsule, the skin, soft tissue muscles. You're nailing it. Yes, exactly. Okay. I don't think they've moved into the realm of pop culture yet. I think they're still on the fringes, and a lot of people don't understand exactly what they are. You're 100% right, and it, I think it even amplifies further that it's used in so many different manners, meaning people define it in different ways. Even at an expert level, you'll see two different definitions of, of and what I might call 
a mobility exercise might not be deemed a mobility exercise by someone else. That's kind of it does get complicated. But the important point is, is that at the joint level, you have the capacity to produce motion. And however somebody wants to define it deeper than that or the cause and effect relationships between soft tissue, neurological, joint capsule, that's... Uh, you know, that's, that's at their discretion. Can you go into why mobility is important? Sure. So mobility sets the stage for developing stability. And mobility and stability encompass movement. Movement is the precursor to developing strength. So if you want to develop strength, athleticism, in whatever sport you're pursuing or just activity you're pursuing, then movement has to be in place, right? If you were to move through a range of motion and you weren't efficient through that range of motion, then stacking strength on top of it, or even trying to pursue athleticism without setting that movement as a foundation can be a problem. So, in the simplest way, movement is exceptionally important to developing strength, athleticism, and mobility is very important towards moving properly. So is it for working on weaknesses in order to sort of improve your biomechanics? Is that kind of why it's important as well? Exactly. In a perfect world, everyone would train from a standpoint of finding their weakest link and attacking it. And for some people, that could be mobility. And for some people, that could be stability. And those are the, you know, the two things that do encompass proper movement. And stability is just simply defined as the ability to control movement. So if mobility is the ability to produce movement, stability is the ability to control it. So they're really married. I'm kind of focusing just on mobility, but stability really is a major part of the big picture. Is that what you're saying there? A hundred percent. Those two things encompass movement, and uh, that is definitely the big picture. What you want to do is move properly before you were going to try to you know, train through that motion. And stability has a direct effect on mobility as well. If you were to look at somebody's hip mobility, if they couldn't stabilize through the core, meaning it, you know, if things weren't fired up and working properly through the core region, then that's gonna reflect in their hip mobility. So fixing a core stability issue could actually transform hip mobility. It would actually change it. So they have a direct relationship. And vice versa is true as well. You know, if you, you could mobilize an area and that could create a situation where you could more easily stabilize another. Okay, so there has been for a long time tests for mobility and stability. The one that I'm, well, I'm aware of two, but they're by the same person, Gray Cook. It's the functional movement screen, an assessment of mobility and stability that's conducted by a professional. They have a claim on their website that they identify functional limitations and asymmetries, and these are issues that can reduce the effects of functional training and physical conditioning. It's got some criticisms, though. It's not without its criticisms. A couple of the major ones I've kind of found are that it lacks research to support it, that a score, that a low score tells someone that they have a high chance of getting injured, um, which is not always true. Have you had a functional movement screen or are you aware of functional movement screens? Sure. I, uh, I've been screened multiple times and I'm actually certified in FMS through Great Cooks Training Centers. And it does have its limitations, just like anything else. It is basically attempting to help fitness professionals diagnose someone's movement dysfunctions. And that doesn't mean that it's actually going to diagnose exactly what's wrong with you. 
it gives you a very generalized direction. So, for example, if, if you were given an active straight leg raise test and it came back that you were not scoring above a one on that, that would give the professional an idea of what direction to go in. But it by no means tells them exactly what the issue might be. And as far as research into this, my understanding is that the biggest studies done for the functional movement screen say that it's been statistically relevant and proven that if you score over a 14, that your susceptibility to injury is significantly decreased. But that is the only, I know there's ongoing studies to kind of look at it from different perspectives and see what's going on with that. But that is the major study that it's hung its hat on, from my understanding. There is another screen, the self-movement screen, that's in Ray Cook's book, Athletic Body in Balance. I want to quickly run through it. I read the book recently and went through the screen myself. Can you explain what it is or, you know, just quickly run through the movements? Sure. So the athletic body imbalance is just what Gray wrote for someone who's trying to look at movement on their own and doesn't have a professional to cater to them. And so he took the original seven movements from the functional movement screen. He broke them down into five and he created them in a fashion that you could do it at home. And what the movements are, are active straight leg raise is the first one and a rotational it's like a rotational stability test is the second one. And then the hurdle step lunge and deep squat. And so the hurdle step lunge and deep squat are obviously from the, uh, the, the larger FMS, the seven exercise, as well as the SLR, the rotary stability one or the rotary mobility one is a little bit modified. And all these things do is you would take these tests and what they're going to, they're going to kind of identify where you might be weak, where you maybe need to mobilize a little bit more or stabilize a little bit more. And then Gray goes through kind of exercise progressions inside the book. And I would describe athletic body imbalance as an exceptional resource for someone who is just training on their own at home. But it will also get you to a point where you're going to want to get into a trainer rather quickly because you'll see the benefits that it provides. Uh, definitely for me has kind of opened up a can of worms and I think it would do with a lot of people and it's made me really interested in, in moving forward with this stuff. I think it would be quite helpful for me and everyone listening if I just quickly ran through my um, what I came up with and then just the way that the book approaches it in regards to the order that you should start and what you should start on and how many things you should focus on. For myself, I failed the deep squat miserably <laughs> and the active straight leg raises my plan is to start working on the active straight leg raises first then retest until i can hold my legs straight at 90 degrees and then if i still fail the deep squat i'll start working on that how does that sound yeah that's exactly right so all the active straight leg raise is, is kind of, you think about the deep squat, it's a very complex movement, encompasses every joint in your body. The active straight leg raise is kind of almost like a, a broken down segmented version of that. And so the active straight leg says to you, hey, I might have a core stability issue, might have hip mobility issue, or I might have hamstring flexibility issues. So, you know, athletic body imbalance, will work you through some exercises that will correct those three things, and then not only will that maybe improve your active straight leg raise to 90 degrees, 
But at the same time, you may go back into that deep squat pattern and all of a sudden you're rock bottom on it because maybe the actual problem with your deep squat was related to what you corrected with the active straight leg raise. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that's kind of, that was kind of my thinking as well, that there really is so many factors that go into it. Well, now I'm just trying to isolate my hamstrings, see if that works. If not, then go back and try something else. As a, like a DIYer and taking it from doing this at home on your own, it's exactly what you do want to do. The exercises will guide you, and then you just you pick and choose what may best service you or what you feel is producing results. But the end goal is this, is that when you're working out, you work out for three or four days or you know, even every day, and then you retest that active straight leg race, and you say, have I made improvements? You know, Do I notice that I'm a little bit better on this? And that will kind of guide you, tell you if you're going in the right direction. Which is another thing that I get from mobility work as a whole because you can set goals like that and you can measure progress quite regularly instead of just aimlessly stretching and thinking that you're doing some work when you actually probably have no idea. You're just um, ticking boxes, basically. That's exactly right. And moreover, you can be hypermobile. So people who sit down and just constantly do mobility work, and I've had this problem myself before. I became kind of more educated on how this all works, but that's where the mobility and stability, how they play off each other, come into play, is that if you are hypermobile, you're mobilizing something that maybe doesn't need it, that would actually be counterintuitive. You wouldn't be producing results. You'd be producing bad results. Yeah, okay. That's interesting because well, you, you think that you could just keep going and flexibility and, and mobility is just endless, but actually stopping and really figuring out what the movement is, whether you are going too far, is something that doesn't even come to, into your mind when you're stretching, which is, that's a good takeaway, I think. Um, but speaking of takeaways, as far as what I learned from the book when approaching an issue is there's two big things and and one was working on one movement at a time and the second one is work on left to right differences before limitations. I think it's realistic to work on one thing at a time and and for me, as long as I'm introducing something that's as low friction as possible, I'm most likely to stick to it. Is there any other things that you can help out with with that sense of what to work on first? There's definitely the hierarchy that you pointed out which says, hey, you know, check the ASLR first if there's a problem there, then let's address that. Then you go to, to the rotary work, and then you progress up the chain of the more complex stuff like lunge, hurdle step, and deep squat. And I, I do prefer your approach. And in a training environment, if you know you were co- to go to a professional trainer who practiced this stuff, they would do the same thing. They're not going to send you out or home with a bunch of random exercises. They're going to focus in on one of those tests, try to fix it, and then climb up the chain. Okay, so just moving on now to talk slightly about cycling-specific stuff. So we were just talking general terms in regards to doing any strength training. I've got two weak areas that cyclists are synonymous for. The cycling movement is described by K-Star. I'm sure you're aware of K-Star. He is... uh, He's blowing up online. He describes it as having a fixed butt and really fast-moving legs. I want to step away from that first into an area that's often neglected, and that's the upper body, Um, specifically the shoulder region. Anyone that cycles, runs, or works at a computer experiences many hours in a flexion state. Um, What mobility work can help out in this instance? Anything from thoracically, which is 
the area kind of right below your cervical spine and between your lumbar, right behind your shoulders for those who aren't familiar. Anything you do self-myofascial release-wise, and that may be foam rolling is what most folks are familiar with. A couple of tennis balls in a sock and rolled up along the spine can really get into the thoracic area. You're right, a, a biker seems, I'm not overly familiar with it, but they're constantly in flexion, so they are going to have shoulder mobility restrictions. They're going to be tight through there. That self-myofascial release, soft tissue works on help. And then after you gain that mobility back there, you need to start stabilizing everything around it. And exercises inside athletic body imbalance can kind of sum that up better, but Things like wall slides are a good multi-segment exercise that helps for stability in that area. I've started doing a couple of things here. I'm just messing around at the moment, but yeah, definitely working, rolling on the top of that, the spine, getting into the sore spots there, I find are helping, but it's early days yet. Um, an interesting side note is that after I did the deep squat screen, I thought that my shoulders, because I was leaning forward and the bar was actually hitting the door frame, and I thought it was a shoulder issue, but I was sort of hunting through the mobility wad stuff, and there was a, a quick shoulder test in that state, in the, um, the overhead squat state, and it actually worked out that it's probably more of an ankle issue for me than a shoulder issue, which really blew me away. It was really interesting stuff. Yeah, when you start to think about how everything's really interconnected and obviously the podcast in and of itself but head to toe anything could cause a problem in the squat and even though it may not look like that from just a visual perspective it's definitely the case it could be ankle mobility you could have hip mobility problems you could be tight in your back tight in your lumbar and tight in your dress i mean any of those problems and that's that's part of the reason what you describe is exactly why there's more simplistic tests than the deep squat. The deep, deep squat is kind of like the apex, and something like an active straight leg raise starts to really break that down a little bit and so you can get a better starting point on what to address. So the second one is hips. Hips are a massive one for anyone in a chair and anyone that rides a bike. Do you have just a couple of exercises that can help unload the hips a bit? Once again, I would definitely point to... From a mobility perspective, you want to kind of use self-myofascial stuff, foam rollers, but in particular in the hip region, I like using a lacrosse ball, tennis ball, softball. Those kind of have a little more focal point to them, and they can get into all the areas of the hip. And that's going to make a dramatic difference for someone who's not up in there, in particular probably for someone who bikes. But also any of the active straight reg raise exercises that were prescribed in Gray's book would be helpful. And those are things like leg lowering, where you would put both legs in the air at you know the most comfortable angle you could get and slowly lower one under control. And that's going to work through your core stability, which may contribute to the hip mobility and you know, on and on and on. It's essentially, you're just trying to um, create space in the joint or unload the joint by having some resistance there. That's the idea behind it? Yes, that's definitely the idea. Okay. Nearly the final question, but in regards to just stretching as a whole or, or doing mobility work as a whole, what's the minimum dose? I've heard two minutes. Is that correct? That's what I think that uh, the internet fails in this department is that there is no general dose. If we were to look at you... You may have mobility restrictions that would say, hey, we need to spend half of our workout on this. Or 
You may have none. We may look at your motion. We may say, your mobility is excellent. We need to go straight to stability. Once again, they play off each other, and the prescription is highly, highly unique for each individual. That's why books like Athletic Body and Balance or going and getting screened yourself, and maybe even not a functional movement screen, but any sort of uh, assessment that's rooted in understanding movement is ideal because it's tough to know which direction you're going in or what might be your weakness without actually looking at it. Yeah, this is where it opens up a can of worms because you start moving in this direction and then even if you got better in one area, something else is going to be exposed. And and after that, it it may be beyond any basic kind of books that you can read and it really needs an an experienced eye or or brain to figure out what is the best way to approach it. It is. It took uh, took me a better part of three years of just grinding it out in this do-it-yourself manner until I realized that I, I learned enough that it took me to a place where I said, I need a professional eye to look at me if I'm serious about moving properly, about getting stronger, and about taking care of myself for the long term. And it's been framed up to me before. You know, you wouldn't just go out and work on your car unless you were a mechanic. And the body is one of the most powerful things, one of the most important things you can take care of on your own. It would be in a lot of people's best interests to go out and hire a professional to look at that. It, it does. And what type of professionals are you looking at here? Is it physical therapy? Is it? I've got no idea where to start, even if I was to start looking for someone. Definitely. It's what you want to is if you're in pain at all, then you're definitely in the physical therapy, chiropractic realm, somebody, you know, with, with a doctorate. If you're not in pain, then you're looking for a quality trainer. Finding a quality trainer is a very complicated thing. The 80-20 for me has always been going to Greg Cook's site and looking at the functional movement experts in that area. There's actually a map out of it. And then those individuals are usually going to place a high priority on movement and are hopefully educated in that area. But it's just like anything else. Just because you go and get a a test uh, certification from FMS doesn't make you absolutely exceptional at what you do. But it is a good starting point for people. And then you go in and and you get an assessment and you see what they tell you. And and does it strike a chord with your common sense? Do you feel like that could be the issue at hand, whatever they're describing is? And that's where you take it from there. I definitely feel that you can, there's enough information out there that you can find somewhat of a clear path, get a bit of an idea, and then that's going to kind of arm you when you are talking to these people, if you're going to start filtering out any trainers. You're exactly right. It's, if you were to read Athletic Body and Balance, the first three chapters, then you've got, you know, you've got a leg up on anyone who's trying to hire a fitness professional. That's going to put you in a place where you're going to be way more comfortable going in, asking questions, and knowing that you've chose the right person that you're about to hand over money to. Yeah. So, Justin, do you have any parting words, any advice, anything that we've missed, or anything that people should really know about mobility and stability and the whole issue? Nothing missed. I would say that movement and posture are exceptionally important. Many people skip this step. They train primarily for their athletic sport or event, or they train primarily for strength or for distance running or whatever it may be, and they miss the boat when it comes to movement. And it truly is the foundation for any of these things and whatever you want to accomplish, whether it be athletically or strength-wise, you need to be efficient in movement to reach that goal. And this may not be a mainstream concept now, but it will become so in time. And so anyone who kind of takes the course and educates themselves now 
is going to be way ahead of the curve. And moreover, you're going to be healthier and generally more fit. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming on the show and, and dropping some knowledge on us. You have pointed me in the, in the right direction. Um, it was through your recommendation that I read Brad Cook's book. I'm pumped to get into it. I'll be reporting my gains after I put some of the uh, advice into action. So just wrapping up, where can people find you? I actually have a website where I kind of try to take expert level movement advice and, and dumb it down so that everyone can kind of understand it. And it's www.superhumanpursuits.com. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you, Damien. I really hope you got something out of that. I know I got a ton out of it, and I will be applying a lot of that knowledge and the knowledge from the book that was recommended. One thing that I want to say is that my chat with Justin really reinforced the need for an individual approach. Even my line of questioning reflects my little understanding of this concept, and it's only now, after having some time for it to sink in, that it's starting to really make sense to me, because I was asking questions for specific exercises and minimum dosage, etc., but these things really depend solely on the individual and their mobility, stability, and strength, and the concerns that go along with these. So, other than outsourcing this to a professional as we spoke about if you are a do-it-yourselfer like myself you really do need to educate yourself on this because there is more to it than just doing a simple test or following Elsa's mobility routine. There can be a lot of wasted time and you can go in the wrong direction at many points along the journey. Even though now I feel like I've got a grasp on the basics, I know at some point I'm going to need to talk to more professionals like Justin that have extensive knowledge and experience in movement and regaining mobility and stability. So just where to start As Justin recommended to me, start with Gray Cook's book, Athletic Body in Balance. Also check out Justin's website, superhumanpursuits.com, and take care of your own business. Now, the tech hacks and products section. The product this week is Strava Enhancement Suite. It's a Strava Chrome extension, and if you don't know what that is, maybe it's not for you. But briefly, Strava Chrome extensions are extra features and functionality that you can add to your existing Google Chrome browser. And this extension, as the name suggests, is all about enhancing Strava, which it does so automatically once the extension is installed. As a cyclist, there are a couple of useful added features, and I say cyclist because there are a bunch of irrelevant features for cyclists, namely the running stuff, but that may be useful to some people because some cyclists actually run, believe it or not. The author himself is a triathlete, and he made a whole bunch of small tweaks to Strava based on his preferences, I imagine, and then slowly over time from input from others around the web. So So a couple of the features that you might find interesting, infinite scroll, so it automatically loads more dashboard entries when reaching the bottom, default to my results, it changes the default leaderboard to my results instead of overall when viewing a segment effort, it adds the variability index which is calculated from the weighted average power and the average power and it's an indication of how hard the ride as well as how smooth the ride was and estimate FTP. So if you select show estimated FTP by default on the power curve. And like I said before, there are a few added features to do with running 
namely running TSS, which it automatically adds, and then a couple of other comparison elements. But overall, it does what it says. And if you are using Strava as your main tool for analyzing your training, then this adds a couple of useful metrics. So if you're interested, the link will be in the show notes. And now that quote from the top of the show, it's some kid from Lillehammer in Norway talking about his favorite people. One of those being Edvold Bossenhagen and the other one being Superman. It's from a nice video from Shimano about pros visiting their first cycling clubs. And of course, for me, it's another insight into a pro's character. And Edvold seems like a super humble guy that just likes doing his thing. He's a power machine and always someone that's in the mix throughout the entire season. Somewhere in the entire season, he pops up and he is a worthy role model for kids in his old club and old riders like me. And that's it. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash mobility to find any links used in this week's episode. Until next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 